listening to Unbound from Northeast Kansas Library System. To learn more about us, please visit nekls.org. Today on Unbound, we are happy to be talking design with Pat Wagner. Dan, how are you today? I'm doing really great. Hey, I wanted to give a shout out today. I brought off a bunch of weeded books to KU Recycling, and those guys were super super friendly and helpful. And I just think that's such a great service that we're able to start recycling some of those books. So if you want more information about that and you're in the Northeast Kansas area, please give us a ring. But today we're very excited to have Pat Wagner with us to talk about design. And I've been chatting with Pat for the last few months. So I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you. Pat, can you introduce yourself for our listeners, especially in the context of today's topic, design? Well, certainly. And we're talking about library design. So there's kind of two forks in the road. One is that I've been working as a trainer and consultant for the library world for, well, since 1978. And I've been on the ground literally visiting libraries in all 50 states and Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., including some of the biggest and grandest libraries in the country, like the incredible library at West Point, the Ivy Leagues, the Library of Congress, and so on, and small rural storefronts. And what I have found over the years is that people pay attention to the physical environment in different ways. Also, in the same context for about 10 years, I was an editor and columnist for a national magazine that focused it on bookstores and it was for the bookstore retail, bookstore gift stores. And so once a week for many years, my husband and I would go to the nearby very fancy mall, one of the top uh, shopping malls in the country and talk to the retailers about design. So I ended up um, starting to consult with libraries about physical design. And then in terms of graphic design, I have a, a part of my degree is in graphic communication. I had a graphic art studio. I could not uh, paint a tree if my life depended on it, but I really loved typography and design. And for about 20 years now, I've been doing training programs, but also just kind of coaching people. You know, people will send me a brochure or they'll send me their logo or they'll want to do things in-house and make it a little better. So my experience has been both formal training and a lot of hands-on experience with both the physical environment of libraries and the graphic environment. So before we get into the how, can we talk about why good design is important in our library spaces and marketing? Well, you know, just between you and me, I walk into some libraries and all I can think of is what were they thinking? The place is cold, it's unfriendly. I, I'm not gonna mention names, but one large academic library in the East that likes to boast uh, about their incredible collection. I walked in and I did a floor by floor survey of the library. And by the way, Dan, I don't do like secret shopper stuff. People know who I am, I have a badge. I walked through the library. I met with the um, committee that was talking about customer service. And I said, if you had started out to create a library that was ugly and unwelcoming, you couldn't have done a better job. It won't surprise you I didn't get the contract. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were so proud of their library. And what it is, it's welcoming. It's not that it's fancy. It's not that it's rich. 
but people want to come to the library, they want to stay, they want to interact. And it's part of the whole experience of customer service, which is not only did I get what I wanted, but I felt I was treated well. And when you're talking about design, it's often unconscious. It's like, wow, this is so warm and nice, but they couldn't necessarily tell you why they liked it. So that's why I think libraries should be concerned about design. So Pat, I've heard you say that there are a few simple guidelines that users can um, follow to produce quality promotional and educational brochures, posters, newsletters, and flyers. Can you give us your tips on that? Well, thank you. And Anna, the number one thing is consult with your customer. I'll go into a situation where um, I'll do a like a graphic arts class on, on legibility for a group of libraries in a system, for example, like Nichols. And people say, Pat, what color should the brochures be? And I say, ask your customer. Well, Pat, what should the type say? Ask your customer. My rule of thumb is if you have a committee doing, say, marketing, more than half the people on the committee should be your customers. And uh, particularly if you have a focus group, that answers most of the questions. The second thing is to keep things simple. Uh, I have the same problem that I want to um, cram as much as I can into a poster, a flyer, a report. And I keep telling people less is more. It's okay for them to be curious. You don't have to print descriptions of everything in your collection. Say, here are five way cool books we have, and we hope you come and visit us some more. So if we start with those two things of being concerned about the relationship with the customer, being able to put ourselves in their shoes, and keeping things simple, everything else kind of follows. Great, thank you for that. I have another question for you. What's your design process like? Do you subscribe to a certain design framework? Well, again, I had a graphic art studio. And so what I had to do was interview the customers. And it's interesting that most of the time, most of the people who came to me were, which were small um, businesses, small government agencies, people who didn't have a big budget, um, and I'd ask them questions like, who's the customer and what is it for? And what are your goals? And you know what? They couldn't tell me. It was like, no, we have to do a brochure. And I'm like, why? And I would actually talk them out of it. And you know where I learned to do this? Among my many credentials is I'm a journeyman printer and I worked in the printing industry before I opened my shop. And I was the one who would stand at the counter with people and they'd say, well, I need, you know, I need a flyer for a bake sale or I need a brochure for our nonprofit. And they couldn't ask the answer the most basic questions. So we start with this whole thing of, again, seeing it from the customer's point of view. And it's almost a strategic process. It's like putting together a strategic plan. What are your goals? How will you know if you reach them? How will they impact the staff, your library, the greater community or institution that you serve? And I tell people, if you hire um, a graphic art studio or an advertising company, and if the first question out of their mouth is not, who is your customer, fire them because they don't know what they're doing. Pat, you've said steal ideas from the best. Where's a good trusted source if you don't trust yourself to know the difference between good and bad design? Well, as I mentioned before, one of the places I learned great physical design was at the Cherry Creek Mall, which in its day before the pandemic was considered one of the two or three top shopping malls in the United States. 
and it was beautiful, warm, friendly, and I literally would go and enter, you know, see what I liked, and then I would go in and I would interview the managers, and they thought it was really cool that I was applying this to little bookstores and gift stores and so on, things like lighting and such. So I always tease people when I do this kind of class, isn't it time that your library took uh, a bus trip to, you know, Kansas City or Dallas or Chicago and to see the best of the best. In terms of graphic design, the, um, how would you say, the heaven, the best place, Valhalla, for design is a magazine and website called Communication Arts that has been around for decades. And when I was first learning graphic design way back in the 70s, it was like, oh my goodness, communication arts, and they're still as good. And they publish, as long as with their website, six magazines every year, each devoted to a different topic of the graphic arts. And one of them is on typography. And what they do is they open up contests from all over the world. So if you get the communication arts magazines, you will see the best of the best of the best. And you know what, you'll see stuff and say, we could do that. You know, you'll lift ideas, you'll lift templates. Uh, when I was first learning all this thing, there was something called the Swiss grid. And the Swiss grid system was basically making a simple template and plugging things in. And I and I tell libraries, you don't have to do everything new and different every time. Keep something simple that's legible. And then you can play with color and type and all those other good things as well. Pat, you have mentioned that children's programming is best when marketed to caregivers rather than children. So what does that look like? That looks like that you're selling it to mom and dad. You're not selling it to a four-year-old. And so if you do things that are too goofy and childish, are you actually giving the parent or the caretaker the information to make a buying decision? I mean, I've seen posters where they have forgotten to put in the date, the place, the time, the credentials, one or two lines about the credentials, if it's if it's some sort of programming thing with with um, a presenter coming in or a musician or something like that, you know, mom and dad are like, is it worth our time to come out here? So I like something that's clean and neat and fun, but not necessarily matching the graphics of, say, a fine picture book for a kid. You could do a little bit of that, but let's always start with the text and make sure you've got the text in mind of what you want to say, and then anything else is decoration. This is actually a pretty good segue uh, into my question. Um, it's not to shame our listeners, but on this theme, are there common pitfalls you see in library marketing and branding to avoid? Okay. We'll talk about both ends of the spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you hire some hotshot advertising or graphic firm, like you get a grant or collide with some money from your foundation or something, and you hire based on their reputation. And to be honest with you, all they care about is winning an award. And they don't know anything about libraries. Uh, they don't even care. They, But you get something extremely fancy and useless. And boards, some boards, never happens in Kansas, get kind of enamored with people with big names and big money coming in and doing a fancy job for them. But at the other end, you really don't necessarily want to hire your um, best friends, sisters, mothers, aunts, grandma, who took one art class in high school to do your logo. So 
being able to say, we're, we want to create something that's replicable. We want something that looks nice and clean and professional every time. And we may spend a little bit more money with someone who's really good at doing a nice logo for us. But otherwise, we're just going to use a friendly typeface, a couple of colors, and a logo that looks good when it's translated into black and white. So you can run off that flyer, you know, 20 flyers off of your um, black and white printer for cheap, but it still looks nice, right? So those are kind of the two ends. You know, it's a balancing act, I would say. Thanks. That's seems pretty usable to me. Um, so I have the same question, um, but about library spaces. So are there common pitfalls you see libraries making with their spaces? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, we have to go back to the design of the space, which I swear to God, for some boards is like their mausoleum. I mean, it's like they're building the Egyptian pyramids. And I saw this hysterically funny keynote at the Iowa Library Association a few years ago, where the person giving it was an architect slash librarian. And she said, with great like gravitas as her opening line, God save us from atriums. <laughs> Impossible to clean total waste of space, total waste of space. And they don't start with the utilitarian part of, is this good for the staff? Is this good for the people who walk into the library? I want something that's clean and bright with good sight lines. And we're doing so many changes these days that I would like rather than some fancy mausoleum, uh, something's like a good Butler building or, or something. I saw a library in Illinois, and I was I, I wanted to mention this and I forgot to, suburban Chicago, and it was ultra modern. It had um, a lot of glass, kind of an industrial look to it, but every single wall could be moved. Every single place could be moved. The carpeting was such that it was like gray squares that could be ripped up and changed. So it was sort of like living in a great art gallery where everything could be changed and moved. And I'll tell you, the place was packed from one end to the other. It was modern, utilitarian, and I loved it. I loved it. The worst example, <laughs> worst example, small town Texas, a wealthy lady had grown up there, went off to Dallas, married for money, came back, and she wanted to protect the little Carnegie. Oh, I offer a service to blow up old Carnegies, by the way, that are mostly totally useless. So if you know someone, I have friends in special forces with C4 and stuff. We just blow them up. And I people, I, one library director said, I'll pay for the C4 because the historic society had burdened them with you can't change everything, making it a totally unusable building for the 20th century, let alone the 21st century. Anyway, so this was a beautiful little building. The woman put in, uh, who became the director, $150,000 of her personal money to make it beautiful and restore it to a magical time. And I went in there at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon and there was no one there. So I met with the director. I had actually been sent by the system, the Texas system, to fix them. I met with the director and two of her buddies, nice people, two other directors who knew what was going on. And she said, I don't know why anyone comes. I said, "This, you may be a society lady, but this is a ranching and farming community. I really think that the ranchers and farmers and their families are, I'm not making this up, are a little off put by the white marble foyer with the oriental rugs. And I actually suggested that they should 
build a Butler building, you know, one of those prefab agricultural buildings on the outskirts of town where there was plenty of parking, have the community come together, build a temporary building, and then with community input, build a building that was useful to staff. And she was crying. She said, what do I do with this lovely building? And I said, give it to the historical society for the tax write-off. They can use a building like this. But the funny thing is, in some places, the historical society will say, no, no, protect the Carnegie, protect the Carnegie. And then we'll say, well, why don't you take it? Oh, no, it's no use to us. We can't use it because there's not enough wiring and the floors are faulty and there's no air conditioning and it will cost a fortune to make it ADA compliant, even in the littlest way. Right. But they want to burden a library, which is a high tech service industry now in that. So I've seen that definitely over the years. So it's like practical and get the staff involved from the beginning of what will make their lives easier. Because if it's easy for the staff, usually it will be also practical for the customers as well. It's like this, oh, oh yeah, we, I guess we have this thing called cataloging and tech services. Oh, that's okay. We'll stick them in the basement with no windows and no heating or air conditioning, but everything else looks pretty, doesn't it? So, and oh, I, I guess we need a loading dock. Oh, oh, we forgot about the loading dock. Oh, gee. Hmm. When you look at what other people are doing, like, like, let's talk about the building for a second. People's expectation in what we call retail space. For example, you don't go into a retail store and see the front desk covered with personal memorabilia and a clutter of um, flyers that go back like 20 years that confuse people. You don't have sales signs from stuff that was on sale three months ago or whatever. It's kind of clean and neat and focused. And people sometimes say, well, we want it to be homey. And I said, no, it looks like you haven't cleaned out the drawers for 20 years. So you want it. What are the barriers you're unconsciously putting up for people to have an interaction with the collection, with the space, with the programming, and so on? How do, how do you make it easier, I think? Another thing we haven't mentioned um, okay, I'm 70 years old. I've had back surgery. I destroyed my knees in a skiing accident. They've never quite been the same, so I can't bend down really well. I have one cataract that's growing. I have retinal bleeds, and I'm very hard of hearing. And it struck me starting about five years ago that libraries aren't for people like me. I walk into the average public or academic library. Ha anything below my waist is now something that I can't see. I can't access half the collection physically. And people say, oh, we'll have a wheelchair. We have a chair. I said, oh, that makes me feel so good and special, right? To be put in a wheelchair to wheel me through the library. And so we have to say, what, how are we displaying things? And yes, real estate is really important, but are you finding that it's harder to get certain people? And you know, a lot of that is invisible. People look at me and I look just fine. I'm an active person and I'm out there, but with or without glasses, I can't see half of what's in a library. Some of it is just lighting, you know? Uh, the Farmington, New Mexico library was one of the first that I knew of that actually, and they were broke, but they, they squeezed the budget. Lighting, they have shelf lighting. Each individual shelf is lit in their library with lots of spaces and each aisle is lit. When I go into Farmington, I feel like I have a chance of actually interacting with the library because I can see what's going on. So don't have the 30 year olds 
figure out things like lighting and space and such. And it's not necessarily um, just for people who have more obvious physical challenges as well. So that's something I, I would like particularly the public libraries to be a little more aware of. I think that's a great way to end. Uh, and it's kind of where we started. It's empathy for the user and involving the user. I want to thank Pat for being here with us as we start this journey on our podcast. To have somebody with such a deep well of knowledge join us is uh, flattering, uh, if, if not um, just super enjoyable. So thank you for being here. We look forward to continue to have you as part of our Knuckles DNA, um, having been working with us long before my time. And uh, so we always appreciate having you around. Yeah, thank you, Pat. It was great.